As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. In July 1553, Lady Jane Grey became de facto Queen of England and Ireland. But her reign lasted just nine days before Mary was proclaimed as Queen and Jane's support crumbled, leading to her execution. She was just 16 years old. In his novel, Before the Rain Falls, The Lost Words of Lady Jane Grey, author David Black tells the story of a group of friends renovating an old barn and chancing upon a stash of old manuscripts that reveal clues to a mystery going back more than four centuries. Thomas had spoken enough. My worst fears were confirmed, and a chill ran down my spine. Somehow, the lady I had helped the executioner's block had been my beloved Eleanor. I vowed to uncover whatever dark plot lay behind the tragedy. As the carts rattled through the gates into Norwich, I remembered my promise to help Thomas secure a wholesaler for his will, but resolved that afterwards I would return to London to find some answers. Sure in my mind that somehow it had happened, I was perplexed over the possibility and curious to learn the details. Back in the city I now called home, I directed Thomas to a nearby tavern, which I knew my contact frequented. Thomas purchased us a welcome ale each, while I scanned the crowd for the ruddy face I sought. In this edition of Historical Fiction, Alice Roberts talks to David Black about Before the Rain Falls, which brings to light previously unknown last moments of Lady Jane Grey, involving mystery, intrigue, politics and love. This is Historical Fiction. David, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Who was Lady Jane Grey and why were you drawn to write about her? So very simply, Lady Jane Grey was the eldest daughter of Henry Grey, who was the Duke of Suffolk, and his mother, Frances Brandon. And she was the great-granddaughter of Henry VII, and hence great-niece of the probably better-known Henry VIII. Why was I interested in her? Primarily, again, because I thought it was odd that all the kings and queens that have reigned England over the time, that not one authenticated picture of her exists. And I suppose my interest was particularly piqued by the comments of David Starkey on the Threaten portrait, in which he said it's an appallingly bad picture and there's absolutely no reason to suppose it's got anything to do with Lady Jane Grey. So that was something that sort of got me going to think, hmm, I wonder why that is. I wonder why there isn't a picture of her. 
Now, this portrait in your novel, it's supposed to be the Streatham portrait, and she's in this opulent red gown with turned back sleeves. But there has been quite a lot of controversy about it. So could you tell me about the painting, perhaps who it might be, and how it's come into the public spotlight? It's by an unknown artist, for starters, but that isn't that unusual. I suppose bringing us up to date a little bit, in February 2019, Alison Weir produced an article where she maybe looked at it slightly more objectively. And she just concluded that it probably was Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's last wife. And the reason that she concluded that was several reasons, actually. But primarily it was due to the jewellery that was painted in the picture. Now we know that Catherine Parr and Jane had a connection. Jane lived with Catherine Parr after Henry had died, and she was the chief mourner at Catherine Parr's funeral. So there is a connection. The other thing to bear in mind is that Jane was 16 when she died, and Catherine Parr was, for those times, a middle-aged lady, and I think the picture reflects that. So Jane is living with Catherine Parr, who I know has also acted as a kind of mother figure to Elizabeth and Mary and Edward. Were they living with Catherine as well at this point? Not Mary. Elizabeth was there for a while. In fact, Catherine Parr almost acted as the ward, really, although she was very good to Mary. And Mary and Jane lived with each other for a while in London. So they were certainly known to each other and were, by all accounts, very fond of each other. So Jane is proclaimed queen and Mary and the forces behind Mary sweep her off the throne. What happens from that point to the point where Jane is executed? The chief architect behind it all was a character called the Duke of Northumberland and he was the main sort of protagonist in all of this and he was Edward VI's chief advisor and he really architected the line of succession that Jane would follow on. And so the time span of the semi-coronation of Jane going into the Tower as Queen, although the public didn't really support that, was... On July the 9th, Edward VI died on July the 6th, but Duke of Northumberland hushed it up for a few days. And he tried to go and capture Mary, but she got wind of it and held up in Framlingham Castle and raised an army and saw him off, and he was then arrested. So that was where Jane's nine days came from, from July the 10th to the 19th, and she never left the Tower of London until her execution in February 1554. So from July to February, she was a semi-prisoner, why did Mary change? If you read one inference into it, it was all about Philip of Spain, who became her husband. And he would be called a zealous Catholic. And I suppose Mary was strongly Catholic as well, following her mother's Catherine of Aragon's footsteps. And I think they thought that any threat to the throne for Mary would coalesce around Jane. And so the conclusion was that while she existed, then there was always going to be that threat. That didn't really stack up in some respects because, of course, Elizabeth, Mary's younger half-sister, was still alive, who was also Protestant. It's debatable, was it only that? And that was really the nugget of a thought in my head. Well, what if Mary really didn't want to execute Jane and came up with a cunning plan to stop that? Well, let's get on to your novel then. Now, it's not a fiction set in Tudor England. It's a fiction set in the modern day and the characters encounter the past in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. So who are your main characters? What is the premise of your book? And what are the journeys and adventures that they go on? It starts in 20 or 21st century England. It starts in Corston in Norfolk, interestingly a stronghold of Mary. And I suppose really the whole premise of the book was that 
Tudor England still exists in modern day England. They call it England rather than the United Kingdom. And what I mean by that is that in a lot of towns and villages around the place, there's still a lot of evidence of Tudor life in the houses that are there. So it was sort of all focused around a main character, John, who's this larger than life retired barrister from Cork, who buys this decrepit old house that was from the Tudor times. And that's where the story starts. To describe the house as a wreck was an understatement. It was an archetypal, distinctive black and white, half-timbered Tudor house, which had certainly seen better days. The bottom half consisted of a crumbling stone wall, above which the second story jutted out in a gravity-defying overhang. Framed with massive vertical timbers of oak and supported by black diagonal beams, the house's skeleton was filled in with flaky mold-stained plaster. So we're firmly set in 21st century Norfolk. How do you bring 16th century England into this? You know, what is the link? So what I needed to do was to link the two things. And really, when we talk about history, that's, I think, a way to look at it or a way I like to look at it is it sets a context and a position for us now to look back at how people lived in the past. And so my central characters of the 21st century, which is Elliot, Alice, Tom, and John and they're renovating this old house and they find some manuscripts and that takes us back to when Jane was alive and of course when you're reading the book without giving too much away you don't know who wrote these manuscripts it turns out that it was the village parish councillor he was just making an account of what was happening in the village at that particular time so in some respects very mundane entries, but when you put it into the context of who the person sometimes he was talking about, then that brings Jane into the equation. So it's really a journey of discovery for these friends, and they get this kind of direct glimpse into another world, into the past. So how are your characters changed by that? Are they enlightened by this flirtation with the past, or do they shy away from it? One of the characters... Alice was an interesting one in that. So poor old Elliot, I think, quite a bit part player in this, really. But his girlfriend, Alice, who's in her mid-twenties, is well-educated and she researches Egyptian hieroglyphics and she's a speak-your-mind sort of person. A little sort of side story to her, she's fastidious about being clean. Yes, she stays in that old ramshackle barn and absolutely hates it. Yes, so, so that's what I want. She had this almost obsessive clean person who was asked to stay with her boyfriend in this barn that had holes in the roof, spiders and all sorts. So she was very, very dismissive of anything that was only 450 years old and didn't really call it history at all because she's looking at history from 3000 years BC. But she began to see actually how interesting this period of history was, not necessarily from the perspective of the traditional kings and queens and dates, but primarily because it said how life was in Tudor times, not for kings and queens necessarily, but for the normal people, for the run-of-the-mill people, and how much of a struggle it was, how difficult it was, and how much sort of serfdom there was amongst the normal people. So I think it did change Alice, and I think it opened her eyes to another area of history that isn't maybe that commonly seen. And I really wanted to weave into the story what was happening in the mid-16th century at that particular time with the rebellions, with the people that worked with the land and how brutal it was in terms of executions and what have you, but also the other things, the day-to-day -day struggles of what it was like to be a sort of normal person in those times. 
I've tried as much as possible to adhere to the facts where I can. And there is actually quite a lot of documented evidence of what was happening at that particular time. So what I've done with that is try to fit that with the narrative as much as I can. So in places, you could think that's what actually happened. And I understand maybe some people don't like that where I've weaved fact and fiction together. But the idea is just to hopefully make an enjoyable story to read. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Darkness had descended hours earlier, and the street commotion that I could hear through the slit that passed through a window had died to a hush. Still, the voices in the tower echoed around the harsh stone walls, and the sound of footsteps on the solid stairs signalled the regular sounds of inactivity. Shouts across the courtyard below broke the intermittent quiet, but the stillness of the night enveloped me once more. Someone was approaching the door to my cell. I could tell because the narrow corridor reverberated an echo, which unintentionally announced even the most discreet of visitors. I stayed stock still as a key jangled in the lock. A shaft of light was the first to enter the room, as the heavy wooden door creaked on its hinges. Expecting no guests or food, I was intrigued by this irregular intrusion. Two dark figures entered the room, their identity concealed by the dancing shadows of my lone candle, which provided the only illumination. I recognized one of the silhouettes standing in front of me in an instant, and felt my knees buckle at the knowledge. Beyond them, at the entrance to my prison, stood two sizable guards with their backs to me. They clearly had no intention of being involved. So it seems your focus is really a history of ordinary people in their ordinary lives. What kind of research did you do for that? You know, what kind of documents or sources were you looking at? That aspect was very difficult. It was relatively straightforward to go and find out about the sort of oft-written history of Jane and her sisters and her mother and those sorts of things. Slightly more difficult to find out what a village was like in 1550. 
how people lived because the times changed reasonably quickly in terms of how tenant farmers lived and the segregation of land and how much land people had. And so I was quite clear that I had to be accurate in terms of the time that I was looking at. So it wasn't either before or after. So I got my historical sort of dates incorrect. So that was more difficult. So it was just, I suppose, like any research, really, it was just trawling through sources of different literature that told different bits and also reading other historical books that had as part of their narrative what was going on at the time. So for example, the rebellion of the farmers, that's been quite well documented. And so I incorporated that into the book and actually had a couple of my characters being part of the rebellion. So that's what I mean about sort of taking a bit of dramatic license and putting names and faces and reports to what would be unknown and probably unauthenticated eyewitness accounts. I suppose Jane's execution is a good example of that. I suppose the building that the characters stay in is this old Tudor house, and that makes me think that buildings must be such an important thing when you're looking at rural country life in this period, when it comes to researching something like this. Yes, and actually you've picked up on quite an interesting development in those times of how building design changed quite a lot in the 15th, 16th and 17th century, not only dependent on architectural knowledge, but also dependent on how many people would be living there, the new sort of middle classes, if you can call them that, coming up, and just the manner in which people lived their lives. So again, I looked in quite a lot of detail through historical documents at what houses exist. And one of the big issues is there are a lot of Tudor houses that are around or houses that were built and originate from the Tudor times. And they maybe look reasonably authentic from the outside but inside they've been changed dramatically you know there may be even two or three hundred years ago that they were changed but they've been changed so again I wanted to make sure that the footprint of the house that I was describing was as much as I could know an accurate one so I'd like to think that there's a lot of elements in the book that are accurate but it's not a historical text on Tudor England. But I do hope that people, after they've read it, enjoy the story, but also come and think, oh, actually, I know a little bit more about what it was like in Tudor England than I did before I read it. And what about the Tudors in general? I mean, we have this perception of them that's very clear. You know, we think we know exactly who Henry VIII is and all his wives, and we've heard it a hundred times. You know, they're almost storybook characters rather than real people. So what do you think our biggest misconception about that period or those people are? I think one thing you don't necessarily see, because I think English history, I suppose school-type history as well, characterises it as almost quite glamorous, really. And if you look at the court of Henry VIII and what have you and the films that have been made around her or Mary Queen of Scots. But I think what that doesn't show is the vast majority of people, life was tough. It was a real struggle just to survive primarily from one winter to the next. Very few babies lived past infancy. A lot of people died very young. The life expectancy, for example, of a woman in that sort of time was 39. So if you're in your 20s now, then you're halfway through. So it was just a really, really tough struggle. And it was brutal as well. Life just didn't have the same value as maybe we put on it now. And people were punished for what we would see as very trivial misdemeanours. And in many respects, the people with authority and power completely 
ruled the roost in terms of what you did, where you went, how much land you could have, etc, etc. Yeah, it was tough. And David, you are a doctor and you work at Great Ormond Street Hospital. So do you think that's changed your perception of history, of writing, of this period? I do. I mean, I think we are so fortunate that we have the medical and healthcare facilities that we do. But over and above that, just the basics that we know now. And you realise, there's no disrespect to people in those times, how little they knew about life and how little they knew, for example, about how the body works or illness or basic sanitation or, or those sorts of things. And that's the other thing you think, well, the Egyptians and the Romans knew what happened in this sort of vast chasm of time that suddenly we didn't. That's a very interesting historical question to pose. But you're right, I think now working in 21st century Britain, then it's a completely different place. But researching this book makes you realise that these aren't just made up people that made it through to the pages of the history book. These were people who existed and had the same sort of thoughts and whatever as we did. It was just in a different time. And that was the bit that I think I picked up from this book. You know, we read about people being executed and what have you. Well, I guess it would have been as frightening for them as it would be if it happened to us. So that's what the beauty of history is and why it appeals to people, because you can't help but wonder, did they just accept that or did they question this? I guess you look at the way that we've changed, that we now find things completely unacceptable that we look back on to relatively recent times. And so I guess people did question it. It's just whether they could do anything about it. But I suppose the other point, particularly with Jane, actually, that struck me was, I think, well, what would Jane be like if she was alive now? And the answer is, she would put most of us to shame with her intelligence and the way that she was educated. I mean, Jane could speak and write English, Latin and Greek. She was learning Hebrew. So she was highly educated, by the sounds of it, quite highly opinionated as well. What a really interesting character. She obviously worked extremely hard. So we don't want to think of these people as stupid or dumb or whatever. And the people that were less educated than her, William, my farm worker, who goes on this rather exciting journey through the book, he didn't have a formal education, but you know he was no fool either. You know, there was a mix in there, just like all of us now. What is the future for you then, David? Have you got any more books or projects lined up? Yes, I'm trying to solve this mystery of the portrait of Jane. And I can get that some people would think, well, so what if there's not a picture of her? You know, she was fifth in line to the throne, but no one ever expected her to be there. Before then, was anyone really interested in her? She was of royal blood, if you like. She was part of the extended royal family. But I sort of think there should be, really. And so... Really what I'm surmising, my sort of general hypothesis is that there is a picture out there, but it's just mislabeled or misidentified. So I'm going about in the new book, which we called The Search for Lady Jane Grey, is looking to see whether I can find it. Other people have sort of looked at different pictures that exist and maybe looked at it from a different perspective. But one of my other hats in my career is that I did forensic medicine and science. And something that props up in forensic medicine is facial recognition software and also being able to piece together what somebody looked like by their family and, and what have you. Now, they also use DNA. So I'm going to approach it from a slightly more sort of scientific, modern perspective to see 
whether we can look at family traits in her sister, where we know that there's authenticated pictures, her mother, her father, her extended family, and try and create what I think is an accurate-ish image of what Jane would have looked like. And then we go in search of matching her up. And it'd be an interesting exercise, I think. But I can't decide at the moment. I'm doing all the theoretical research at the moment and looking at it and looking through all the portraits, of which there are many. Some of them are quite clearly, even if you take artistic license, not her. Some of them look like sort of plump 40-year-olds. So I'm doing that research at the moment. But what I can't decide whether to do as a straight report, sort of this is how we did it, this is what we did, which... You could make not too dry or whether to do the same again and make it into sort of a fictional version of this and then come up with the conclusion at the end of what she actually looked like. And the plan is to, once we've got this idea through computer imaging software, what she looked like is then to get somebody to paint her as a 15, 16 year old. So we will come up with an image of what Jane looked like now. I'm sure some historians will hate me for it. <laughs> yes, maybe. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a delight to have you. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Historical fiction.